Before we begin our sermon this morning, I want to thank the congregation so much for all of you who came out and helped out Wednesday night for our community cookout. Uh, it was a great turnout from the community and a great turnout from the congregation, and it was really uh, a blessing for me and I think for everyone who was up here that night. We got a lot of positive responses from members of the community, and hopefully this can develop into more of a relationship based in Christ rather than based on hot dogs and fireworks. Um, secondly, I want to thank you all for your concern and for your prayers for, uh, for Tabitha's father, Mark. He's doing very well. He's uh, been moved to uh, a room. He's out of the surgery ICU and uh, is, is doing very well, so we're thankful for that as well. So at the beginning of uh, springtime this year, uh, Tabitha and I, we, we, uh, we like to garden. Uh, she grew up on a farm, and I, I grew up with a gardener for a mother. And uh, we, we love uh, to get fresh vegetables because we don't have to pay for them. And uh, Tabitha really likes okra. And so I thought, I'm, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to plant a bunch of okra. I'm going to plant you know, two, two rows of okra. And so I go out there. And I, I, I turn up the soil, and I put some fertilizer down, and some you know, compost, and I, I plant the okra all in a couple of rows there, and uh, water it well. Week to ten days later, we get these little bitty green shoots, just about an inch, inch and a half, two inches tall, and uh, you know, pretty little green shoots with a couple little leaves on them. And then after a couple of days, there's a there's fewer, and a couple of days later, still there's there's none, and they've all been sawed off by slugs and snails and so I start over I replant more okra all in a row and I put down some seven dust I'm going to keep the bugs away this time and uh, I think that seven dust might be seasoning salt for for slugs and because they ate all those again so this time third try third time's a charm three is a good it's a it's a biblical number it's going to work I take the okra seeds I, I put them in an egg carton and I, I keep them up on the porch away from the bugs and after a few days they they grow up and I let them get a little bit taller a little bit stronger couple of leaves on them a little more resilient this time I set traps for the bugs I put down more seven dust I'm very diligent about it and I'm happy to say that we now have okra plants uh, about this tall uh, so uh, any day now we're going to start uh, getting way too much okra because we now have three rows of okra. Uh, see, I, I, I fell into a little bit of a trap when I planted the okra. Uh, I, I failed to recognize that the sprouts need help. They need more protection than what I was giving them. And, you know, once they, once they came up, you know, I... I falsely believed, okay, we're good. I, I, they, they've come up. We're in good shape. You know, minimal, uh, minimal effort from now on now that these things have sprouted. But we know that in ministry as in gardening, that's not the case. When something is young, when something is in a formative time in its development, it needs more attention, not less. When the seeds were in the ground, unsprouted, there was nothing I could do for them other than make sure they had the nutrition and water and sunlight that they needed to develop. Once they had sprouted, they needed more of my attention, not less. And so we're going to be looking at the, the principles of guidance, of protection, and more importantly, of mentorship in the book of Acts. We're looking at an example today, a man named Joseph. 
not Old Testament Joseph, who was a, a slave and uh, sent off to work in Egypt and ended up rising through the power of God up to being the second in command in Egypt, and not Joseph the carpenter, who was the earthly father of the Son of God, but we're looking at a guy named Joseph from Cyprus. Joseph from Cyprus. Now, Joseph, uh, he was from the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean Sea that uh, sits just just east of the northern part of uh, the Mediterranean coast that Israel lies on. And Joseph had traveled, uh, he, he's a Levite, he's very devout in his faith, travels from Cyprus in a time when this would have been very expensive, so we can pretty safely assume he's a man of some means, travels to Jerusalem. And uh, I know in modern times when we, when we travel long distances, sometimes we'll stay a week, two weeks, maybe you know three or four weeks, but we don't generally stay in places for a very long time. In the ancient world, because of the, the time and expense, when people would travel, they would often stay for a prolonged period of time. And this seems to be the case with Joseph, where he goes to Jerusalem, and he spends some time there at a very important time in our history as a church. See, this was during the early days of Christianity. And Joseph, we read about him in chapter 4, end of chapter 4 of Acts, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know if that, that field was, was near Jerusalem or if he contacted someone you know, by letter far away in Cyprus and sold a field there. Regardless, he takes this money and he hands it over to the apostles. So devout is he in his faith and his commitment to the gospel that he goes and, and sells not just a piece of land, but all the future income that that land would represent for him. He sells it, hands it over to the apostles because he cares about this ministry. And so here he is, a Jew far from his native home. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. He's, he's what we would call a Hellenist. Uh, a Hellenist is a, is a Greek-speaking Jew who's in the, what's called the, the diaspora or the dispersion, a Jew far out of Jewish territory. So here he is, uh, a Hellenist far from home, selling his land for the sake of the gospel. And he's committed because he, he seems to stick around Jerusalem for some time, and he very well may have been present for the events of Acts chapter 5 where other Christians begin to sacrifice of their means. Ananias and Sapphira lying and seeing the, the results of their sin. And also in chapter 6, where other Hellenists, the, the widows of that community, are being overlooked in the distribution. And it says in Acts chapter 6, the apostles, uh, verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, possibly including Barnabas, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And they, they, were, and they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. 
So among these people we have, we have Hellenistic Jews and one person who is ethnically non-Jewish, a proselyte. And so this, if Barnabas was present for him for this event, would have been very exciting for him to see other Hellenistic Jews taking a bigger role in the early church. This would have been exciting. And on the heels of this excitement, we have Stephen who, who gives testimony to the truth of the gospel, but ultimately is the first Christian martyr. And that excitement and that joy that welled up in him would have been met with tragedy and heartbreak. And among the people who killed Stephen, we know there was one man, Saul of Tarsus, among them. But Saul, seeing the death of Stephen, thought, you know, this is good, but it's not enough. And so Saul begins to persecute the church. And we know this story. We know about the road to Damascus, about Saul's conversion, and about he changes not just his heart, but also his name, changing it to Paul. So, in Acts chapter 11, we see this man, Barnabas, again. He pops up, he emerges again in the book of Acts. Here he is, likely still in Jerusalem. I don't know if he's been traveling in and out or if he stayed there this whole time. But in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it, Scripture reads, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, now we know a guy from Cyprus already, uh, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And, a, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted. Another word could be translated as encouraged. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many of the people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is huge. If this doesn't shake you, it should. This is one of the most important moments in the book of Acts. Here's this guy Barnabas that, that we, give, we give credit to, but we don't often really understand the depth of the meaning of his service. He goes to Antioch because he is seen as a valuable, encouraging man, full of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles, they don't want to keep this, this encouraging powerful individual to themselves in the work in Jerusalem, which was tremendously important, they see him as valuable, and they send him out to a troubled area. They send him to a group of people who are seeking asylum, refugees, essentially, because of the persecution that was coming down on them. And so we have this displaced population in the city of Antioch, and Barnabas is being sent to them to do what he does best, to encourage 
And what does he see as being an encouraging work for him to do? These people who, because of Saul, had to travel over 400 miles from their home to find peace. He goes and finds the very man who helped start and perpetuate and push that persecution. He goes and finds a man that many of these people would have seen as an enemy. Never mind the fact that he's had a change of heart. They may want to love Saul from a distance, but Barnabas wants them to love him face to face. Barnabas does a work of reconciliation. So he goes out and finds Saul, the man complicit in the murder of a man they would have seen as their brother, the man who would have driven them out of their homes, the man who continued this persecution that had so devastated their lives, and he brings them into their community. This is the man they wouldn't want around them. And for a year, Barnabas works with Saul, Barnabas works with the church in Antioch, and what do they do? How do they react to the power of Christ working within them, the power of Barnabas encouraging them, and the work of this reconciliation? Verse 27, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you look on a map, Antioch is above Jerusalem. They're talking down in in geographic terms, not in terms of cardinal directions. Um, So they come down from Jerusalem, down to Antioch near the coast, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And this is is verified by the historical record. Uh, Claudius, he was doing quite a bit at that time to begin the early Christian persecution from the state of Rome. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they did, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas. And Saul, this man that was so despised among them that they had to leave their homes, in a year's time, they trust him enough to send their hard-earned wages in a time of great trouble by the hands of Barnabas and the man that they didn't trust. The man who had so wrecked their lives. Because Barnabas did a great work of reconciliation. Barnabas brings Saul in and begins mentoring him and shaping him into the man that he would become. So now, chapter 12. We, we see the apostles, or we see Barnabas and Saul come down from Antioch, come from Antioch into Jerusalem. And they would have been there for the events of chapter 12, where we see that James, the brother of John, is murdered. And then following that persecution, Peter is arrested, likely himself to be killed also, but is then miraculously released, and he is escorted by an angel all the way uh, out of the prison, and he winds up at the house of a woman named Mary. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 12 reads, And realizing this, this being that what he had seen was not a vision, but actual, uh, an actual reality. Uh, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were, gla- were gathered together and were praying. 
And he knocked on the door of the gateway, and the servant named Rhoda answered. And we know the story. Rhoda, Rhoda doesn't unlock the door. Rhoda's so excited. Rhoda runs away and goes and tells everybody nobody believes. And uh, she ends up bringing him in. Uh, but we, have, we are introduced to this character, John, whose other name is Mark. John Mark, as we would call him. And, and we see this, this very early uh, connection between Peter and John Mark. And that's going to be important. So... Verses 27 through 30. Oh, sorry, I've already read 27 through 30. Uh, We're we're looking at uh, Acts chapter 13 here. Sorry, I've misplaced my notes here. We are in the last verse of chapter 12. Last verse of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So through all this, Barnabas and Saul are present in Jerusalem with Peter, with the other apostles who are, who are headquartered in Jerusalem, and with this John Mark guy. So Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, so John Mark joins them on this first, uh, this first trip back up to Antioch. And when they had reached Antioch, chapter 13, uh, when, when they were in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, a few months ago, I did a, a sermon on, on fasting. So here it is again. Here's that verse again about praying and fasting. See, it's important. Um, and if you weren't here for that lesson, it's on the podcast feed. It's called fasting. It's really easy to find. So Barnabas and Saul are being sent off on this missionary journey. And who do they take with them but John, Mark. So they go first to Barnabas's, to his home. The, the island of Cyprus, and they, they go to, to Cyprus, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend all the time to go into the story here, but they work a miracle on behalf of the Lord, and people begin believing, and when they have, uh, when people begin to believe, persecution arises, and so they have to flee, and when they flee, verse 13 of chapter 13, now Paul and his companions sailed from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And so, just for a short time, through just the first little leg of this, of this first missionary journey, John Mark is with them, but then he leaves very early on. And for those of us who are familiar with the book of Acts, we know that, that Paul is, is he, he doesn't take too kindly to that. This, this hurts Paul. And so, here, Paul and Barnabas set forth on this missionary journey with a few other unnamed companions. And they go to Antioch and Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. Um, there are multiple Antiochs. And so in Antioch of Pisidia, we have uh, the apostles again doing a great work there. They're preaching the word to the Jews there. And many Jews begin to believe in Jesus, but there are others who are opposed to them and they begin to contradict Saul. And so... Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, turn their attention towards the Gentiles. And this is very early on in Paul's ministry. He begins to be the, the, the apostle to 
the, the Gentiles. And throughout this, we, we see in the beginning of chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are listed, Barnabas is listed before Paul. And over time, that begins to shift. And traditionally, we tend to assume that it's because Paul becomes the leader. I don't think that is the case. Because as we go through this first missionary journey, we will see that's not necessarily how, it's, uh, how it appears to those who see them. What Paul is doing, he is taking on the role of the chief speaker. Barnabas is the encourager. He is the leader. But Saul, Paul, is gifted with, with the ability to speak the gospel. And so he takes on this chief speaker role. And so once they are preaching the word to the Gentiles, verse 48 of chapter 13, and the Gentiles heard this and they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And so when the word of the Lord begins to spread, what happens? Persecution arises and they're driven out again. And so they go to this place named Iconium. And in Iconium, They preach the word to Jews and Greeks together, and people begin to believe. And again, more persecution, and they're driven out of Iconium into Lystra. And in Lystra, we have a a very uh, interesting and and somewhat funny story here. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they perform a miracle of healing. And... When the people had seen this, verse 11 of chapter 14, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands and to the gates and wanted to sacrifice with the crowds. And so they see Barnabas as being the leader. That's why they they associate him with Zeus. And they see Paul as the chief speaker, as it says here, because he's the one doing the preaching. And so they want to sacrifice. And they, Barnabas and Saul, they, they tear their clothes and say, no, please don't do this thing. And so, verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he is good. For he did good by giving you Uh, rains from heavens and fruitful seasons in your hearts with food and gladness. And each one of these words scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So even as Paul is preaching to them that they're, they're still really wanting to sacrifice to them. But here in Lystra, this is where there's a young man who has uh, a a Jewish mother and, and a faithful grandmother, but a Greek father. He is from an ethnically diverse background. His name was Timothy. And we don't read about him here, but when Paul returns, this is when he begins to be uh, more deeply connected with Timothy. So this may have been the point at which in the ministry that Paul is first encountering at least Timothy, if not Timothy himself, Timothy's family. But Paul is stoned in Lystra. And in verse 21, um, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, and saying to them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The work of the Lord is difficult. I don't know about you, I haven't had rocks thrown at my head yet. Um, but the work of the Lord is challenging. 
to think that it's going to be anything other than that disagrees with Scripture. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. See, Barnabas and Saul, their ministry is, is not just to spread the gospel, to, to see the, the sprouts come up, but to ensure that they are protected and guided by establishing an eldership for these communities of faith, making sure that, that the, the new Christians have their own mentors, that they have their own overseers, people to help guide them in the growth of faith. And so in this Barnabas, throughout this whole ministry, Paul had, Barnabas and Paul have been working together. Barnabas has been guiding Paul. And so they return to Antioch in Syria. And this ends the first missionary journey. And after they spend some time in Antioch, they travel back down to Jerusalem. They meet with the apostles again about, uh, as, they're, as they're bringing in Gentiles, there's, there's a whole new set of questions I know when people come from a different cultural background, when people are on the mission field, people from different cultural backgrounds, they have questions that they ask that, that we never conceive of. And so sometimes we need guidance. And so they go down to Jerusalem to seek guidance on, as they spread the gospel to the Gentiles, how do we handle some of these issues? And so while they're in Jerusalem, who do they encounter? Chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I think sometimes when we read the story, it kind of hurts. Because we see all the great things that Barnabas and Paul have done together. We see these, this great first missionary journey and just the powerful effect of these two men. And then we sometimes look at John Mark and we go, oh, this guy, he comes in and he messes up the whole thing. He, he, he spoils it, and, and these two powerful brothers are, are, are split apart. We, we don't like it when good things end. But God works powerful things through endings and through transitions. God is doing great things. So what's the effect of Barnabas? This man who, is, who has not written any part of the New Testament. This, this man that we only really read about in the book of Acts with maybe a few scant references elsewhere. We don't really have much recorded of that Barnabas ever said. We only have a limited amount of what Barnabas ever did. What, what was the effect of Barnabas? On the surface it may seem like he, he just kind of held the hand of a great man. I don't think that that's the case. I think what he did is he helped Saul become who he was. Without Barnabas, there is no Paul. Paul would have been content to stay Saul and to stay in Tarsus and do his ministry there. 
But without Barnabas doing that work of reconciliation and bringing him into a community of people who may have not wanted him, may have not welcomed him, without that, we would be missing 13 books of the New Testament. Had Paul not gone to Antioch, he would not have gone on that first missionary journey. Without that missionary journey, we would have no need for Paul to write these letters. Had Barnabas not been so firm in his belief that he needs to take John Mark with him, we would be missing not just one of the Gospels, but the first Gospel. You see, John Mark is Mark. I think sometimes we forget that. That the first written book of the gospel, Mark is, is widely believed to have been written sometime before both Matthew and Luke. And that when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and we see the agreement within them, it's because Matthew and Luke go to Mark as a believable and reliable witness. And you see, the, it is important that Mark stayed with Peter as well and was mentored by Peter. Because also, Mark wasn't present for Jesus' ministry. But Peter was. A lot of people believe that, that Mark's gospel is based on the sermons of Peter. And so when we read the book of Mark, the, the witness, the urgency we have there is not necessarily Mark's himself, but of Peter the apostle. Without Barnabas, without his encouragement, we'd be missing a gospel, 13 epistles, and the countless souls and the spread and growth of the gospel that he affected. So how, you might be asking, how do we put Barnabas' example to work? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Because as the youth minister here, I am tasked with helping to grow, not just the youth group, but to grow the, grow the church that we have here. And the way that the church grows, the way that the church matures is by connection. We are designed to be community. When Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, it would best be translated as, y'all work out y'all salvation in fear and trembling. It's plural. You don't work out your own salvation in a shed in your backyard by yourself. You do it within a community. And we have to be a community if we're going to grow into the likeness and the image of Christ. The church has a problem. Not Saudi, not just the Church of Christ, but churches all over the U.S. and really all over the world. Youth retention. We bring up kids in the youth group and they get to about 18. They go off to college. They get married. Maybe they leave town. Maybe they stay around, but maybe they don't come back to their congregation. I know that this is something that this congregation deeply feels. I have heard it from your mouths. And it hurts to see that. It hurts to feel that. When, when we invest, and it feels like that investment is kind of sawed off before it has a chance to really grow. Unless Christians have been transformed by the cross and engage in living as a community, we blunt and numb the impact that we have on one another. The number one predictive factor for a person staying involved in the church, it's not me. It's not a youth ministry. It's not fun 
friendship building uh, activities. It's not Bible camp. It's not mission trips. It's not community outreach. It's meaningful, re- it's meaningful relationships with mature Christians. I'm going to say this again. The number one factor predicting someone to stay involved in the church into adulthood is a meaningful relationship with mature Christians. The number one predictive factor is you. I know this to be true. I know this in my own life because if it weren't for people like Euphine Burdine and Faith Graves and Heath and Dawn and their families, and after I moved from here to go to Dixon County, men like Alan Reagan and Bob Spencer and members of the Walnut Street Church of Christ, and when I went to Fried Hardeman, professors like Stan Mitchell, and when I came to UTC, men like the former campus minister Jerry Cox and, and members at Central like Chris Willis and their investment into my life, And when I went to China, even still then, I needed people investing in me. There was a a wonderful Christian woman, Cheryl Smith, um, who's still over there doing mission work and I don't think is ever going to leave. Uh, She too invested in my life. Still, I have people investing in me. As a 30-year-old minister, people are still investing in me and still mentoring me. Greg Nance, the the minister at, at Signal Mountain, through my master's in divinity program, I have to have a formal mentor. And so he is working with me to help me to be the best minister that I can be. We need these relationships. You need this relationship. And so we're starting a program called the Saudi Sowers Program. I've, I've already introduced this in some of the care team meetings. I've talked a little bit to some of you about this. Here's how this works. There is a form, a little half sheet of paper, just a few very easy questions out in the foyer. If you're interested in this mentorship program, uh, grab one of these forms. It'll say SOWER on it. This is for the the mature Christians of, of the congregation, and I want you to fill that out and put it in my mailbox. It's right there out in the foyer. It's not in the office. It's in the foyer. Fill that out. If, if you don't have time to fill it out today, get it back to me before July 22nd. Because on July 22nd, I want to have a meeting with everyone so that we can discuss this in, in greater personal detail. Once you get your, your sapling, and it, it may not be immediate because, let's face it, if we look around the room, um, in the teen class this morning we had eight people um, not including Tabitha and myself, and I know that we had three out. So uh, just in high school through college, we've, we've got about uh, 10, 12 people. And then we have a few others who are younger as well. Um, but you vastly outnumber our youth, which is a wonderful problem to have. Um, so not everyone will get one, but everyone who wants to be involved, I will try to get involved in some way. I promise you that. So when you get your sapling, this is what you do. The first step is recreational bonding. It is one of the fastest ways to get to know somebody. And what I mean by recreational bonding is you go for a walk together. You go for a hike. Maybe you get ice cream or coffee or go grab a donut. Maybe Sunday after lunch, you go out to eat together at Mazatlan over by the Walmart. Maybe if the kid likes it, you go fishing. 
or you garden together. You just do something together. Play a game. Go to a movie. Uh, whatever works for you as, as a pair. Get to know their interests. Get to know their strengths. And perhaps even more importantly, get to know their weaknesses. Encourage them by building up God-centered self-esteem. Go to their school events. That's huge. Show them that you support them, that you love them, that you care for them, because I know you do. And when the opportunity arises, study the Bible with them. Pray with them. Help them. When you help them, help them to, to develop critical thinking skills. This is a, a, a vital skill today. Help them to set their own goals. Don't set goals for them. But as you get to know them, help them to improve in areas that they deem valuable. And help them to find their own solutions. Don't just give them the answer. Because that's not always as impactful as finding the answer themselves. So walk with them through that process. Put their strengths to work. We have an awesome youth group here. I mean it. Uh, the, the work that men like Heath and Charles and Brian and Brett and others have been doing with the youth group makes my job so much easier. <laughs> I don't know many congregations that have the quality of individuals that we have. And so you are tremendously blessed to get to work with them. Put their strengths to work. And help them develop life skills. I can't tell you how many people I went to college with that not only didn't own an iron, but didn't know how to use one even if they found one. Help them to learn how to cook. Maybe change a tire. Plant a garden. Knit. Build a birdhouse. Do things together with them. Help them to learn. Help them to grow. But we need to realize that change is often slow. They're going to be different than you. And you're going to be different from them. And that's going to be uncomfortable and tense at times. But that's okay. I think it was probably pretty uncomfortable for Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch when Paul showed up the first time. But just think of the effect that had. The willingness to go through uncomfortable situations makes us all grow stronger and grow closer to God. Realize that they can teach you something too. You know, as I've said, we've got a great group. They're smart people and they have a lot of gifts and a lot of talents. Be willing to learn from them and you will be richly blessed by that. But I think most importantly, it's important to recognize that for better or for worse, it's not going to be permanent. They're going to grow up, and they're going to have their own mission to fulfill. And they will begin the work of investing in others and fulfill the mission that God has given us to preach the gospel. This is the invitation. If you're struggling, if you feel like you need help, 
you need prayers, you need the love of this community, or if you feel like you don't know Christ, you haven't been baptized into him, you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're not part of this family yet, and you want to be, the invitation is always open, but, but especially now, come forward. Be part of this family. And if you're struggling, share that burden. This is a great time. This is a time of thanksgiving. This is a time of love. Judgment has no part in this. We love you. We invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing.